This is In the Booth with Chuck. Hello and welcome to today's episode of In the Booth with Chuck. Tonight I'm joined with by Noah Tedlett to talk about the United States men's national team, round up the transfer window, and so much more. How are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty good, I'm not going to lie. Nice to be here in the booth. <laughs> De- definitely um, glad to have you, especially considering um, that us discussing soccer not via Twitter DMs has been a long time coming. Um, cons- <laughs> especially considering that we've just missed each other probably multiple times at Union Games in the past. Definitely uh, one particular Union game we won't be discussing, but don't worry, 2022 is a new year. Hey, hey, we, we were still happy to be there, even if we weren't happy with the result. Um, I won a trophy, sir. <laughs> Definitely need an MLS Cup. Oh yeah, no, I mean it. It would it, be it would be it would be one thing if it was like the Revs who beat us in the Eastern Conference Final, but there's there's bastards up in the, up north in I ninety five. I I just can't, I just can't have them winning, you know. No, I I I agree. Like it it hurt to see um that team hoist MLS Cup, but at least that's not what we're here to talk about today. So. Um, <laughs> Let let's get rolling with um I I would like to think at least by now most people listening to this podcast know who I am, but um tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Uh for those who aren't following me on Twitter, which you definitely should be, shameless promo. Uh, my Twitter handle is positional play, except uh, L's in the name are actually just capital I's, so let's not get any confusion there. And this will be in the, the show notes <laughs> to make it a little bit easier for people to find. <laughs> uh, I'm just a random dude on Twitter who just happens to be tweeting whatever catches his eye as far as soccer analytics or anything via film. But um, you're you're de- I, I would say you're you're definitely sell, selling yourself short considering you've done um both some soccer and philly blogging um yourself as well as weren't you at least at a point doing some stuff with eif soccer too with who i'm sorry um was it eif i believe yeah it was eif i wrote for them for a little bit and then during uh 2018 or during the 2018 MLS season, uh, me and a few guys who I'll shout out uh, at Jay Studio, unfortunately an NYCFC fan, uh, at A. Mickey Kennedy, and the admin actually for Orlando City uh, Soccer Club, and a few more of my buddies, we all ran uh, pretty much an MLS blogging site, and that caught fire for a little bit, and that was really fun, so... Yeah, I shouldn't. I shouldn't know your background better than you do. Um, <laughs> and uh, 
you you also ran another Twitter account. Um, I believe it was <laughs> er, er, Eric Sensational. Let's uh, let's just say uh, Jack isn't a big fan of me tweeting Bundesliga videos, <laughs> and that account got clapped. But we move, we move. Yeah, we're 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 back now, and have learned a lot about um copyright. <laughs> DMCA to say the least. <laughs> um, but one one thing that is like kind of what ended up drawing me into your feed was that you enjoy doing a lot of like um, more tactical related breakdowns, focusing both on player spacing and performance and things that are much deeper than the surface level numbers. Um, what got you interested in that specific um, side of soccer? Uh, I think it's more so me enjoying like how things work and how one thing can relate to another, if that makes any sense. I think if you watch soccer from a surface level, and I don't want to sound condescending or anything, but... I think if you're just watching it from a surface level, or, and, you know, there's nothing against it, like, just ball watching or whatever, enjoying, like, take-ons and stuff like that, I think there's just a whole side of the game that you're missing out on. And once I realized that there's so much more than what happens with as far as on-ball actions go, I think that's what led to st stuff like... Uh, stuff like, for me, well, A, formations and tactics and tactical setups as a team, and then seeing how each individual plays a role in that. I mean, that's yeah, that's de that's definitely fair because even even for me, um, I got into tactics kind of more of a backwards way of going through the numbers for fantasy analysis, and then kind of reverse engineering how teams get to that, especially when there's always the um, kind of argument when it comes to fantasy work of the um, eye test versus the stats test. And while everyone will tell you that you need both of those things together to properly evaluate someone's performance, a few people take the time to figure out what from the field gets into those stats as well as what things um, such as like even um, dummies are a good example that aren't captured in the stats that are still extremely imp important to a player's performance. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I think it's more so, or not more so, but I think people have to look at stats and the eye test as like being having the steering wheel and having the brake on your car. Like they're both extremely essential and where with the eye test, for example, you might not always catch everything the first time you watch a game and you watch tape over and over and over just to catch like very minor details. Uh, sometimes a stat, a stat test can be a quick gateway to seeing what you want to see specifically from a player. Yeah. And no, sure. <laughs> And sure, I mean, there's outlets like WeScout and people who will 
uh, record compilations and everything, but sometimes there will be sometimes stuff will be cut out from a, like twenty seconds earlier in a sequence from like a player that you want to watch, and in order to in order to maybe get the full picture, you might want to look at a stat like uh, progressive passes received or progressive dribbles. This, see said thing that you might have missed out on mm-hmm. yeah no de- definitely and i yeah not not too long ago i did a brief foray into we scout um and that that place is dangerous um <laughs> like i yeah just e- even even having just access to like more optostats now um with true media now with being with cbs like that's something that i already just um play around in too much and that can get in the way of me actually doing my writing but you do always have to um when going through those stats make sure that you're not ending up with confirmation bias or anything like that because you will usually go in trying to prove that a player does something but you don't want to just pull the one stat that they're good at. Yeah, you're at, that's that's absolutely right. I think uh, sometimes you just have to. It's easier said than done, but sometimes you just, like when you're watching a player, you just have to see how play unfolds and just look at that objectively, as opposed to maybe seeing why a player isn't receiving the ball as much. For example, mm-hmm. uh, it could be down to maybe he's just not recognizing where play opens up, where he's or in settled possession, he's not uh, recognizing where he can find an open open passing lane. But again, yeah. that also goes down into seeing what what goes into the into like a team structure as well. Mm-hmm which is why it's still important to be able to evaluate, assess how the team plays on top of an individual's performance. And, and ba- based off of um, like all of the work that you've done, is there any particular um, style of play or formation that you prefer? Ah, uh, this is pr- recency bias probably goes into this, but lately I've been watching quite a bit of Bundesliga soccer, and I see a lot of teams set up in like a five-three-two, and they're aggressively pressing, and seeing the way how uh, one player's movement in a pressing scheme can trigger a whole group of players to try and swarm the ball or collapse, whether it be uh, using this sideline as a help as a help defender or just collapsing in the middle of the pitch i think i'd go with that yeah no definitely i mean i i still am just like i'm a sucker for counterattacking um (laughs) just because i like i really like watching the defensive side of the game and what a team has to do to get peppered with 20 shots and not actually concede a goal, which is usually what at least some of the better counterattacking teams end up doing because 
it's all about limiting those shots to coming from terrible positions so that things are easy for your goalkeeper and then taking that one chance that you get during the game and then um, making something happen with it. And even during this recent international um, break, a team that is always one of the best at it is watching Costa Rica. Surprised you didn't mention Canada after what we witnessed in Hortons Field. <laughs> don't, don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> un- unfortunately, though, that is a good transition into um, one of our topics for the day that is the U.S. men's national team who, who are in a good spot, theoretically. Um, after coming off of this international break, collecting six points in World Cup qualifying with wins over El Salvador and Honduras, but at what cost? The Canadian game was, uh, or the game against Canada was definitely upsetting to say the least as far as the, as far as the result goes. I mean, if not for CONCACAF implications, for the simple fact that we've always viewed Canada as the little brother. So for them to pick up a win is always, it's always annoying, but overall, I don't think it was a terrible window, a terrible window. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't think that you can, I don't think that while people will call it a terrible window because of the loss to Canada. And like um, when we would have been happy with seven points and drawing that game, I don't think you can be concerned with six, especially considering how results went elsewhere. Um, But in that loss to Canada, it was extremely annoying that the United States could have easily won that game Greg Berhalter made a single tactical tweak. And with that being? Oh, just actually going route one and using Jazzy Zardes for what he's good at of bringing the ball down in the air. Like, and in a game where you have so much possession, your striker only having 29 touches is just not okay. Not great, yeah. We have seen Greg Berhalter use a 3-4-3 in the past. And 3-4-3s tend to lean towards more uh, hot, more high press, uh, long balls with hopefully seeing the striker knock it down for a winger or a midfielder who wants to help support play. Which I think, given the conditions, maybe might have been the better route. Yeah, I mean, considering. Especially, yeah, especially when like three four three usually counters three four three relatively well. Um, yeah, and worst case scenario, you play to a stalemate, which would have been still would a better a outcome. As far as the match goes, I don't want to get into Berhalter too much because although we didn't, although Canada did have a slightly higher expected goals 
to us. I think they were, or I think they had a 1.07 XG to our 0.8 or something along those lines. I can't necessarily be mad at a team that maintained over 60% of the ball, more shots on, more shots, more shots on target. For the most part, I'd like to think that they handled counterattacks to a reason to a reasonable level. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, the transition that led to the first goal that wasn't great, but that was more so uh, individual errors than it was the shape and how they were able to deal with the transition. And goal obviously, and Matt. Tur- yeah, I mean Matt Turner isn't necessarily known for his distribution. Not that I think he's a bad keeper, but. Uh, obviously, that was a poor goal kick, and then you have Miles Robinson, who didn't necessarily get the best jump on the on the run that was being made in behind. And Kyle Larin, while well, he, I think he only had like an eleven percent chance of scoring on his that's, goal. That's all. That's he all was still able to, in Concacaf. Yeah, we've seen crazier things in Concacaf for one and B. I mean. He was still able to get a step on Miles Robinson to be able to get the shot away. So fair play to him. Yeah. No, as far definitely. as possession, as far as possession goes, uh, I think Pulisic obviously struggled, and we could see it in a his average position, which was nowhere near the left, the left wing or the left half space. He was playing very central. And even when he would get the ball on the left, not that I think of him as someone who is really good at being able to dribble laterally to try and disorient the block, which he had a few, I think he had a few instances of showing, but that triangular rotation between Anthony Robinson, him, and was it McKenney, I think? Playing as the left yeah. central midfielder, yeah, yeah, yeah. McKen- McKenney was on the left, and, and and I mean, and even with McKenney, with all of the good from his performance, it felt like he was trying to do too much, and then ending up still being in bad positions himself. Um, yeah. So it it really is hard to like just blame any sing any singular player, considering. It was a team loss. A team um, loss, which eventually, or which will ultimately fall on Berhalter. Yep. And speaking of things that fall on Berhalter, uh, there also is a forward issue, considering he played three different forwards in each, um, a different forward in each game. And Ferreira, Pepe, and Zardes combined for. Zero shots on goal, one assist, and an expected goals total of 1.38. While Ferreira was the only forward to create a single chance. I don't, I mean, that's obviously not what you want from your forwards. I think in their own right, though, I think even with... uh, with Zardes not being able to get as many opportunities on goal, Pepe as well. I think they still did their job as a striker 
in Berhalter's system. Typically, we usually see them uh, pinning the pinning the back line, and in a game where we we'll, we really will dominate possession, it will help if we have their um, their opposed the opposing fullbacks either playing to the touchline or having to deal with relentless pressure from the wingers or the fullbacks that are darting forward, mm-hmm. which can open up space for maybe an interchange between the midfielder and the winger or uh, McKenney to recognize that if the whole back line is being is being occupied with dealing some, some one of our forwards, then maybe he can try and make a late run to get in behind. Yeah, and I don't want to necessarily say that um, all three of these forwards are bad because that's definitely not the case. Yeah, that's Um, true. I think, yeah, I think it's more a problem with the rotation and the team just not knowing how to play with them because all three of them are very different forwards. And then this was also included with um, Josh, Josh Sargent and um, Daryl Dickey be, being left in England. And unfortunately, DK also got hurt while left in England. With DK, and I don't want this to come off as uh, harsh criticism or anything. I think the strength of DK is being able to run at the defense, especially on the counter. He's obviously incredibly strong, and when he does get his chances on goal, then he, in most cases, he'll see them in the back of the net. We've seen that in Bar- when he played for Barnsley. Hopefully, we see that again at West Brom. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know um, with him being under Steve Bruce now, but we'll, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of how West West Brom play soccer, but that's just me. But I was, I think, like three managers ago now when they were under Slavin Village. <laughs> but with DK, I don't know how great he is at holding up the ball and just letting the play run. I think he has to be that direct striker who can be able to run at the defense and in a slow tempo game. Like we've been playing not just this window, but since Berhalter has been been in charge. I don't know if he really suits our style, which is why I'm not too surprised at him getting left out. Yeah, no, I mean in that I mean, kind of he he has the same like issue with not fitting the manager style as Jordan Peefock. Yeah, which is really unfortunate because I really do like how Peefock's been performing in in Europe. But it also is an impressive thing for for the United States when we can name literally like six forwards, four of whom are playing in Europe, and even out of the ones in Europe, two well, three really aren't getting a call. Um, it do, it does show just how far this team has come when it used to be a situation where literally anyone who happened to make it to Europe was just almost a guaranteed starter because there was <laughs> no, one, no one else. 
it's kind of crazy to think uh, not too long ago, it was just Pulisic, McKenney, and Adam stealing the show. And this and this golden generation has for, just so yeah. many 2000s for, players, 2001s. Forgetting Timmy Chandler and Fabian Johnson? I don't think I want to... When I think of Timmy Chandler and Fabian Johnson, I'm immediately thinking 2014 World Cup. I think that ending still is a little rough considering if uh, Chris Wondolowski just put his chance away, then we'd, pr- we'd probably uh, be in the quarterfinals. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't ready for um, Wando on this call. But, <laughs> if yeah. you list any of the strikers you just named, and throw them in that situation, they probably score. Well, I mean, if you put Wando back in that situation, he scores too. It's just, it's just you really unfortunate. No, I know, I know. No, <laughs> um, nah, I mean, it, it's it's really unfortunate because it, it was easier to score than it was not to score. And it does happen, but just when it happens on that stage, it's it's rough. It's obvious, yeah, it's going to get magnified so much more. And also, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm almost running out of proper ways to address just what the hell happened in Minnesota last night. Um, because like for, for those who aren't aware, um, the, the win over Honduras was played in temperatures that ended up with a wind chill of negative seven degrees, resulting in two Honduras players being withdrawn at the half, one being treated for hypothermia and the other being treated for um, hypothermia-like symptoms, but at least turned out, thankfully, not to be. Um, And while the United States did outfit both the Honduras national team and um, the referees the referees with some cold gear, it was clear that Honduras wasn't properly prepared to play in this um, in this type of environment. Um, and especially while, it seems like everything in soccer is a million dollar game when it comes to some of the smaller teams in CONCACAF, that's not the case because it really is the haves and the have nots. Hell, I mean, El Salvador went on strike for about an hour before their game, um, before Canada because of disputes over how they were going to be paid for it. I'm, Guessing you don't want Matthew Doyle on your as the next guest here, given his last tweet saying we should post every game at St. Paul. <laughs> I mean, I I love I love the stadium, and odds are that like this is such an anomaly when it comes to how cold it will be. Um, because I mean, literally, even the week before in St. Paul, like the temperature would have been fine but yeah just this being the coldest u.s game it was like by over 18 degrees because it was too cold for there to even be snow on the pitch um 
it's just it's just pretty ridiculous, especially when they were like what a hundred yards or so from the Vikings indoor nice stadium. To piggyback off of what you were saying about how the weather can be anom- an anomaly, uh, there, I still think that you shouldn't have St. Paul as a venue in January, regardless of what temperatures might have been in past weeks or whatever. Just for the simple fact that you're running the risk of those temperatures always being the case. Oh, yeah. No, I I mean, I definitely agree with that. And that's why kind of um, and even with Greg Berhalter's comments after the match, like where he kind of pointed out the fact that games are played in the Central American um, countries, like in the middle of the day with high humidity and like 90 plus degree heat. um, Also failing to um, add in the fact that we do that in Orlando ourselves. Um, <laughs> and and like the the United States is a unique part of CONCACAF where literally any temperature or elevation you want, you can get in this country. And that truly does give us the biggest home field advantage in the region when it comes to how and where these games are scheduled. But it's like you could have had your pro-U.S. crowd hoping that Central Americans wouldn't like the cold and travel there in so many places in the North that aren't as cold as Minnesota and still would have been a more than reasonable um, travel trip from Canada into the U.S. Overall, I I don't think uh, USSF can look at uh, what just happened and be okay with themselves. Well, the social media manager was very okay with themselves. They had a lot of them <laughs> last night. <laughs> Tweeting Greg for Halter in his cool gray, cool gray Jordan 11. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 that might have been, like, the most tone-deaf social media display that I've ever seen. Um, it just, like, how that whole thing went. It, 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 was, it was pretty ridiculous. And it's like you have the notifications for that Twitter account on. So like, you know what the replies and quote tweets to what you're saying look like. And all, all you had to do is just like tone it down slightly and it would have been fine. I also don't appreciate that. Like no one said like, sorry to Honduras at all. Like I haven't seen a sing, a single person, um, involved with the you know with the men's national team that was just like you know what it does suck that you had to play here and that um and that a couple of your players um had had to be taken out due to the cold and hypothermia like at least sorry about that like just show the slightest bit of compassion but it just wasn't there i think what is heart-wrenching the most about this whole situation is the Honduras manager saying I already want this game to be over with and it hasn't even kicked off oh yeah and and I mean and that was before like he I'm pretty sure he like he almost quit before before the game because of not wanting to come here 
Oh my goodness. Well, talk about home field advantage. Messing oh, yeah, up I mean, an entire soccer federation over some cold weather. Well, I can't say over <laughs> some cold weather, but you get but, the idea. But yeah, I mean, it's because it, I think, yeah, he, he was basically like, why are we even playing this game? We're out of um, World Cup contention. And now you we have to go to Minnesota. Just like, why? And that's a it's a very fair question. Like, what's what's the point? That's got to be some form of imperialism or something. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not I'm not sure either. And I, I do hope that at least eventually, like someone will come out with something about this, um, because like it it's it's just bad and yeah like i i don't i i really don't know what more to say about it because like it's it's such a hard concept and issue to process well if they can move the world cup in qatar to december to adjust for the heat i'd like to think going forward this should be addressed yeah no you that... think but yeah it, it will have to be like fifa level um mandates on match conditions basically like even even if it's just like if you're in somewhere with warm weather matches have to be played at night and cold weather they have to be played during the day something the day. like that minor would be just a massive um, difference in the in these scenarios, but it truly does have to come from the top. And even from a fan's perspective, no one wants to see athletes shivering, playing with frozen limbs, stiff muscles, kicking a ball that could probably hurt them. Oh yeah, watching watching Matt Turner. Um, just doing nothing except standing there and trying not to freeze was pretty painful. And I, I do, I do appreciate um, Fox's camera crew making sure you saw as little of Matt Turner as possible, just because (laughs) even sitting at home, you're in pain, like, and the team probably could have kept a clean sheet without him ever being on the field. So like, let him spend a little more time on the sidelines in that blanket. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I was just going to say if Berhalter was real, he would have played 11 outfield players instead of 10 people in a goalie. And and also, not not to pile on Berhalter, but you still had a sub left when he took McKenney out. And he chose to only take McKenney out with that sub instead of bring in Sean Johnson for the final four minutes of the game and let Matt Turner go to the locker room and warm up. I'd like to think that MLS goalkeeper of the year deserves that at the very least. And 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 it's like um, Sean Johnson deserves another cap. So um, <laughs> With, yeah, two birds, one stone. Exactly, but nope that that would have been um, too too apparently too much to do when the game's already won and <laughs> you've um, frozen the other team into submission. But um, too too busy taking selfies. Yeah, but be, before um, we get too far down the road of um, 
the weather. We had an entire transfer window also pass us by. Um, God, it really was the, only this week. Um, wow, this has really been a long week. But um, <laughs> yeah, mon- Monday was deadline day. And um, did like did you have a favorite non Tottenham or Philly transfer of this window? It might have only been alone, but I think Coutinho going to Austin Villa was probably my favorite transfer. Solely for this, I mean, narratives are already written out. He's not only going to be seeing Jared again, but he's going to be working under him instead of playing alongside him. Villa, not too long ago, were, weren't looking too good under Dean Smith. And after hiring Gerard, they've just been playing really enjoyable soccer, to say the least. It seems like a day one install of just some like basic pass and move soccer, but they work, they work really well together as a team, really well drilled. And I mean, they've been starting to pick up some results. So for the okay. simple fact that uh, they continue to show up with that ambition and be able to bring a player of his caliber on loan, even if it is only on loan, I think yeah. it just shows the ambition of the club at the moment. Yeah, and I mean, and they do have the, the option to purchase him permanently if the loan goes well enough. Um, I forget what the the actual fee is, but um, Villa had such an interesting transfer window because also I think that um, getting Colin Chambers is going to be huge for them as well in having that utility defender role that can allow them to play either a back three, he can slot in at right back, um, and is a good enough center back because... Mikel Arteta doesn't like giving anyone not in his first team chances um, <laughs> to push Kansa for a starting spot as well. Um, sticking with um, Villa, I, I'm i going to break the rules that I set and name two transfers because I, I love... Um, them getting Luca Dean and freeing him from Everton. Um, that's going to just be an amazing transfer in the fact that they have, with both that and Coutinho, exploded the potential of their left side. Um, I don't think that they needed Luca Dean because my second follow-up to this is Matt Target heading to Newcastle um, because he's, he's a... He's a player that I love watching, and I think that he's going to do extremely well being like almost the guy at Newcastle instead of just one of the guys like he was at Villa. I would love to see Matt Target at least be part of the supporting cast and not just like shy away from uh, being able to rise up to help them get out of relegation uh, you would think that a team with Almiron, Alan St. Maximin and Joel Linton you would think those guys are just the quality 
in that team would be enough to at least stave off relegation, but they're just not picking up wins, man. So maybe well, I mean, target helps shore up a, some stuff in the back end. Yeah, I was gonna say it's a it's a new team um, now after the January window where I think they spent a hundred and ten million in bringing in um, new new additions because yeah they have because um, they added target um bruno i'm not gonna try and butcher his um <laughs> last name but one of the best defensive midfielders in the world right now especially when it comes to um ball progression forward i don't like i like dan burn as a player i don't know if i like dan burn in the newcastle um defense as much as I like it that right back for Brighton but um it's it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see and at least also now if Newcastle still gets relegated which unfortunately I hope that they do just for um the storyline of them going down after all this um <laughs> it's it's gonna be a fun crash and burn to watch chaotic evil i see oh yeah i mean <laughs> you, you you have to remember um i'm in the content creation um game so i do need storylines to write about and unfortunately newcastle spends a lot of money and stays up is not the same as newcastle burns out of the premier league <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be even cooler if the new owners came right as right as they get relegated, bring them right back up, and all of a sudden they turn into Man City. Oh, yeah. I mean... But, no, I'm um, kidding. No one wants to see that. I, I mean, I, 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 unfortunately, I unfortunately think that that's the only way to truly challenge Manchester City, at least in a long term. So... While, yes, this is bad for the the Premier League, it is good for eventually there being more than three to four teams that can compete for the title. Premier League spending, obviously trumps every other league by a wide margin but i don't think people would come i don't think money is necessarily the issue it's just the fact that we want to see a team be their own city because we've seen chelsea spend just in the past year spend close to 100 million on lukaku uh not too long ago they spent nearly as much on kai havertz they spend quite a bit on uh, Timo Werner. Mm -hmm. So I'm not mad at a team necessarily want uh, seeing a, a rise in finances thanks to new ownership. It Because at the end of the day, recruitment is still just as much, if not an even bigger tool to winning. Oh, yeah. Um, and at least... Stay, staying on the spending track, I mean, still in around the world, you have a few examples of um, teams that are 
supposedly broke, um, still finding money. Um, I don't know if we want to start with money laundering or bank loans. So um, uh, I'll give you as the guest the choice there. I see we're going to be talking about uh, Philadelphia Union legend Austin Justy. Um, we weren't because there's nothing to talk about with Arsenal, but I guess <laughs> by the, um by the transitive property you've picked bank loans then because Barcelona was able to get Pierre Mrikabamiang um as they've completed a wild January that saw them bring in him Adama Traore. And Ferran Torres, and was didn't they have one more signing? Those are the most notable signings that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, and I like even with getting rid of Coutinho, and I I love I will I will say I love what Usman Dembele did about basically just being like I mean. Y'all want to move me, but I have no interest in taking a pay cut anywhere. So find a way to move me properly or I'll sit here and ruin all your finances. Um, <laughs> but one, like, I don't, I don't get how, how Barcelona did this, but also do you think that these are even good transfers in their attempt to win the Europa League. I think off the top, well off the top of my head, I can't think of who would play up front for Barcelona before Aubameyang. And while I don't think Aubameyang is going to be banging in 15 plus goals in the league or maybe even in all competitions end the season i still think if the goal is to make that one push for some silverware because they're sitting six in the in la liga at the moment i think yeah. if you want to see european football again it's gonna go through winning the europa league so in that regards i think that's good it's good business I'm just questioning going uh, long-term. I don't see Adama spending that much time at Barcelona when they're trying to develop all the youth talent that they have. I mean, I, yeah, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if um, they don't extend, um, if they don't end up triggering the buy option on the loan. But, like... It it makes it makes just no no real sense to me right now because um cur and currently Barcelona's point forward is um Luke De Jong, um, but I guess it will be a a front a front three of Aubameyang, Ferran Torres, and Adama Traore does seem pretty good, um, but like. I, I real I really just don't know what to think of 
Barca. And even, I don't know if Xavi's any good. <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and slander Xavi. But I think uh, scratching your head, trying to assess all the business that he's done lately is fair. Because I don't see what exactly their model is. Again, like we just talked about, it might be them just trying to make a push for the Europa League. But it's yeah. just signing Adama and Aubameyang doesn't seem to fit and, uh, Xavi's yeah. style of play. I think and it's it, more so yeah. just who's the best on the market that they can afford. Well, and especially when what his point was upon being hired was to bring back basically the old Barcelona. Um, I They just don't feel like players that do it. I mean, because even with what Adamatrari does well, um, with dribbling and creating space, like that is like half of what Barcelona wants to do. But the other half is also being clinical with the ball and passing into the, the right situations, which I still would like, I would have trusted Antonio Conte to drill Adamatrari better on improving his end product than I trust Xavi at this point. And that's not, and it's not to say just that like Xavi's a bad manager because we, we don't have enough data to know that. Um, but for players like that who have gone through so many managers and only improved marginally, you do need an extremely good manager um, if they think that they can unlock the last bit of hidden potential in someone. Definitely agree with that point. And on the topic of Adama, I think what I question the most, just as far as uh, what he's going to bring to the team, I question uh, whether he's going to be hugging the touchline as much as he did when he was at Wolves, or if he's actually going to try and receive the ball in the space between the between the lines, maybe try and let uh, Serginho try and dart forward and make some overlapping runs. But we'll just have to we'll just have to see what Barcelona are like when when they start when the window ends and we're back to seeing club football again. Oh yeah, and um, I mean, someone's gonna get thrown in the, uh, this Sunday against Atletico Madrid, so oh, that'll. Right. Yep, right into the fire <laughs> for everyone. Um, Talk about storylines. I'm sure you're loving this. Uh, I, luck- I luckily am not tasked with La Liga too much, especially since um, MLS is starting soon. So most of my responsibility is preparing for that. Um, but a league that I am tasked with is Serie A, where... Juventus got the top available striker on the market who supposedly wasn't on the market in um, Dusan Valovic. That whole transfer saga was 
a nightmare to follow, to say the least. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I don't <laughs> even... I still don't understand what happened there. And it is kind of funny that basically Tottenham funded this transfer for them. Essentially. It took... If we start all the way at the beginning, transfers, at least from this season... Uh, in the summer window, it seemed like it was going to be uh, maybe three horse race between City if they're not going to get their hands on Messi or Holland after signing Grealish, Spurs as like a Kane replacement, and then possibly Arsenal, but that seems really brief. And then as we start to creep into the to the January window, it seemed like. Oh, Spurs are ready to make a $60 million bid on him. Arsenal are ready to counter. And then you hear all the smoke and mirrors just for him to stay in the league that he was already performing at. Which, I mean, I do think that that is best for him. Um, because he he's a great... While he's a great striker, he doesn't seem like... An, a striker that can play in England um, because one well, like one dimensional strikers and like just usually don't do well in the Premier League because with faster defenses, they're really able to take that dimension away. And while I'm not a fan of this cliche, uh, being PL or Premier League proven definitely is going to play a role into building pressure when he first arrives. Oh, yeah. For the simple I mean, fact that he's going for so much, people are going to expect him to, to start bagging goals right away when you can argue he's not even a, a polished product just yet. And I think after, I mean, after Timo Werner, does any like top striker abroad that's like not Holland want to come to the Premier League? For ambition purposes, possibly. Maybe not necessarily for style of play. But uh, yeah, but like if you can, I, I would say if you can still get a transfer to like Bayern Munich, Dortmund, Juventus, Inter, Barcelona, Atletico, and or Real PSG. Madrid, yeah, PSG as well. Like, that's comparable. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you're still going to get Champions League soccer. You're still going to be playing at the highest level. Sure, you can argue the Premier League is the best league in the world, but it's not like that. It's not like the rest of the top five leagues in Europe are unbearable to play in now. Yeah, and, and I mean, you'll be more likely to actually get rest in those other top five leagues. <laughs> so that's a, that's, a, that's a thing as well. Like even with the Premier League not having a winter break and other leagues having one makes a massive difference in your likelihood of getting injured um, over, over your time in, in, the, um, in the league playing. 
And COVID definitely doesn't help congesting all the fixtures as well. Oh yeah. Um and but even with with this transfer, there's still gonna be quite a few strikers available in the summer, and that's when everything is really gonna get moving. Um and I wanted to see, do you have a favorite striker of um that second tier of players likely to move after Holland? Uh, probably uh, Alexander Isaac. Solely, this is definitely biased, but for the simple fact that he's of air chain descent is naturally going to make me lean towards liking him. But <laughs> <laughs> even... And this season, he hasn't been performing all that well. But when you look at his game, he's a striker that's comfortable playing with his back towards goal. At his 6-3 frame, he can hold the ball up pretty well. Uh, he's not hes not really like a clunky dribbler, you know. he can, he's, he's comfortable with receiving the ball in tight space, which can help teams that... Um, that are looking to play di- really direct, they can use him as a means of being able to hold the ball up, re- retain possession, and either the team can slowly start to build up or they can try and counter quickly. And I think he still does a decent enough job of being able to get fine spaces within the 18-yard box. And that's so- what's always led him to score 15 plus goals in a season which I think he can still do even though he hasn't been scoring as much yeah so I hate hate this because like even though um Isak's name is in the rundown just because of um being one of the top strikers on the market um I can't say that I was expecting us to come to the same answer which is unfortunate um but <laughs> no i like i mean i really i really am like a big fan of his st- style of play of just coming deeper to get the ball dribbling and creating chances and like and and realistically in a league like while he hasn't like played as a winger much i think he would be just as comfortable playing as a winger alongside um more of a target striker or even um a like in a front two in in the league um and that it would definitely be like most interesting out of those strikers to see how he develops because he can almost be anything you want him to be if he's coachable enough to turn into an aerial target because he's still just a massive dude. (laughs) You mentioned him playing as a winger, and the first thing that popped up in my head is like a comparison to Diogo Jota because he's still, what, 6'1", 6'2", able to move really quickly. He played up front quite a bit for Wolves, but ever since he's been at Liverpool, especially with Mane out, he's been pretty comfortable on the left, being able to make runs off the backside of the striker. 
Oh yeah, no, I don't even and, know. I don't even know if Jojo has a position anymore. To be honest, he's he's just Klopp tells him where to where to play, and he's like, "All right, cool, let's go." But but yeah, no, I mean that that is actually a really good comp. I don't like not not sure if he's as fast, but definitely deceptively mobile enough. And it sucks that like I don't like I don't want to see him actually be reunited with Odegaard at Arsenal. But yeah, I do want to, but it's like, it, it sucks because I do want to see those two back together because they are just such a good pairing of talented players with understandings of space and where each other are going to be. It was so fun to watch, but it can't happen at Arsenal. <laughs> Odegaard's probably lobbying for him to come in the summer as we speak. Oh, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, like it's gonna it's gonna be interesting to watch where both him and and uh, and um, Jonathan David go uh, over over the summer as Lil unfortunately gets disbanded even more after winning the league because only- that's what happens. The only thing I have to say is wherever Jonathan David goes, Timothy Weah has to go with him. I'm fine with that. I just, I just can't see those two get separated. Well, I mean, and they're literally best friends, so I'm yeah. sure Jonathan David would just have a clause in his contract of um, Timothy Weah is going to be the starting winger next to me. <laughs> I mean, uh, and for all the Canadians that might be listening to this, I don't know if you have a huge Canadian following or not, but I think uh, now is a great time to remind everyone that he was born in Brooklyn. (laughs) So if everyone can get off the the wave and if, I don't know, we can forge some FIFA rules and force him to play for the U.S. national team, I'd greatly appreciate it. Yeah, well, we sh- should have been watching Kyle Aaron when he went to UConn on <laughs> trying to switch him to being U.S. eligible. That's quite a bit of depth we would have at Stryker between him, Pepe, David possibly playing as a false nine, given we have Reyna and Wyatt out wide. Ballistic oh, yeah, as no. well. I mean, it would have been insane. Like, but um, one day, some striker is going to take hold of this position. Uh, it just might take a bit. Luckily, there's at least wingers and West of McKenney still scoring goals. <laughs> Hopefully, Pepe can develop at Augsburg. Because I would love uh, to see him hold the position down for the next 10 years. Oh, definitely. I mean, that that would would be amazing to see if he can continue um, what he's doing there. Um, So I do want to close out with one final thing for you. Um, Uh One, we are unfortunately going to skip over Spurs transfers, but we can't skip over the top four race in England. I I know we both have the same heart pick on who um, ends up in top four, but 
who's your realistic rundown? So I definitely, barring any catastrophic collapse, see City still winning the league. Sure, the gap might only be six points, but... It's not six. I think yeah, it's not six points in reality. Like they, yeah. Any gap you get, let City get above you is always going to be an incredibly uphill battle to fight. So, with that said, I think Liverpool will finish second in the league. I th- think Chelsea might have the whole Lukaku thing figured out. It seemed for a little stretch in the middle of the transfer window and before the window opened that uh, Lukaku seemed a bit unsettled for one, and which I think Tuchel is an incredible tactician, but part of the game is also about social confidence. And I think spending <laughs> yeah, so he's, much he's on a striker that, that you're unsettling isn't a great isn't a great move. Uh, not that I can justify him saying that he misses Inter, because if you missed Inter, well, it's not his fault necessarily why he missed, why he had to leave. But there was a bit of, there was a period of time where it seemed like Chelsea could potentially have fallen out of the top four spots, but unfortunately, after uh, letting them get three wins on the trot against us, I think they're starting to regain their form, and I think they'll still finish third in the Prem. And fourth <laughs> fourth place in the league is probably going to give whoever, whatever team wins that the same euphoria as City winning the league. But you haven't picked a team. I don't think... Mainly because I really don't want them to get top four. But I genuinely think Arsenal could do it. So, I mean, I, I'm i not far off from you because I think the winner of the North Carolina Derby, whenever that is actually played, and I'm still salty about it not being played when it was supposed to be played, especially yeah. since... <laughs> Um, Premier League postponement rules have now even been changed to um, needing four COVID cases at least to postpone a game. Um, But I think the winner of that game ends up in the top four. Um, I know that Manchester United is on a good run right now, um, but considering the off-field stuff going on with uh, Mason Greenwood right now, that's probably going to end up unsettling the team, as well as the fact that they don't look convincing in any of their wins. Um, Things are going to come crashing down sooner rather than later. But, yeah, it's, it's between Arsenal and Spurs for me. Definitely agree with you on that. Uh, I think even excluding the situation over on Manchester United, which I really don't even want to speak on because it's that bad. Um, when Ralph Ragnick first joined United, I didn't think they played that convincing of a brand of soccer. It seemed like 
And mind you, I'm obviously not the biggest fan of McFred as a midfield pivot, but well, no, no one it's is. The... That's, that's not a Champions League <laughs> midfield pivot, so you don't have to um, try and defend that one. No, yeah, I definitely won't. But it seemed like Ragnick was uh, trying to overcompensate by not being able to have that ball progressing six by trying to play, trying to skip the middle phase of play and having. And in fairness, when you have uh, players like Rashford and Ronaldo, who I think is isn't necessarily helping the case at United right now. Uh, when you have those, like when you have those two up front, I think telling them to stretch the stretch the back line with a run, so that way you can maybe try and get Bruno on the ball from a higher position. It's nice in theory, but it hasn't resulted like clean final third progressions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if there's any game that really makes me feel this sort of conviction, it was watching the game against Newcastle early on. And fair <laughs> enough, he's still trying to implement his he's still trying to implement his style of play, but watching Harry Maguire and I don't remember if it was Varane or if it was Lindelof playing alongside him, but seeing them just skip the middle phase, trying hoping that uh, their connection with one of the strikers is on point and they're able to get to the final third without touching McFred hasn't really worked out well. And I don't think, and I think their lack of acquiring a ball progressing six is going to ultimately lead to their downfall. And when they play lesser teams like Newcastle, for example, they're going to struggle to create the quality chances that they should be creating. Yeah. I, and then, or go on. Oh, yeah. I was going to just say, at least I do think that some of the solution to their problems, at least with ball progression and just having a dynamic presence to compensate for the massive black hole that Cristiano Ronaldo creates in every formation that they try to play. Um, <laughs> at least in the short term, the first few games that we've seen from Anthony Alenga have been great. And I hope to see more of him, just not in wins for Manchester United. It's still going to be hard for him to consistently get uh, a lot of minutes considering what their front four, well, front three now minus Greenwood uh, is looking like. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's... I yeah, I don't know how how much he plays uh, because, yeah, you're, you're not going to bench Marcus Rashford and Jaden Sancho for that much longer, one would hope, but, I mean, who knows? <laughs> Well, this is Barclays, after all. We've seen crazy things. <laughs> and then you have West Ham, who had a ridiculously good start to the season. But I think over I... the course of a 38-game season, you start to see that uh, as good as Mikhail Antonio and Declan Rice are, I just and uh, Ben Rama, 
of course. I don't think that's enough for them to make a real top four finish. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do like West Ham. They're just not deep enough um, to to compete at this point. Yeah. Um, I hope that they get there over the summer, but yeah, they're just not there yet. I think their silver lining is still uh, their recruitment has been pretty good for the most part for the last few years. I mean, Ben Rama, we obviously knew was going to be really good just from watching Matt Brentford. Uh, Jared Bowen, he might see a move soon, but they're definitely going to be able to flip him for more than a lot more than they paid for, along with Declan Rice, who was an academy product. Mm-hmm. Who's probably going to go for seventy plus million, just off the fact that he's English. Uh, he's still a decent uh, ball progressor, and he cleans up play really well. But I think who I think whatever team pays for Declan Rice might be reaching just a little bit. Yeah. So Manchester United or Chelsea. Um, I'm so- hmm? Manchester United or Chelsea? Yeah, just as the most most likely suitors for oh yeah for Declan Rice. Um, but yeah, I could definitely, definitely I could definitely see uh, Declan Rice go to United to replace one of McTominay or Fred. Yeah, no, de- definitely on that, but um. Thank, thanks for for joining me today on, on um on, on the podcast Noah um and for for those listening you can find you can find this podcast basically anywhere on Google Podcasts Apple Stitcher um unfortunately still on Spotify but um hey anywhere we can get streams um <laughs> As there, do you want have any um, closing words for listeners? Uh, quick shout out to Views from the Bridge because they're obviously the best uh, Philadelphia Union podcast around. I will also say that um, this wasn't included in the notes, but I'm going to say that uh, Chuck definitely paid me to say that as well. But I enjoy listening to them, so... <laughs> And yeah, thanks again for having me. I definitely appreciate it. Yeah, def- definitely. Thanks for coming on because um, yeah, it was a good good time, um, especially getting to dive into topics.